Thank you, Michelle. All right, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 this morning, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. This is the fourth Sunday, the month of September, which means that we will not dismiss our children for Kids Crew today. They'll be with us. It's kind of our pattern that we follow the last Sunday of every month. The kids stay with us during worship because that way they get to, uh, they get to learn what it's like to, to be here. They get to hear me preach, and they get to, uh, they get to sit with you as parents, and, and they're going to wiggle a little bit because they do that, right? And it's not bothering anybody. We want them to learn as well, and so we're excited to have them with us. We're finishing our study in the book of Daniel this morning. Now, certainly you can tell that Daniel doesn't end with chapter 6. In fact, the, the, the book itself goes on for many more chapters, but it really turns a corner because in Daniel chapter 7 through the end of the book of Daniel, what you have are a, a series of prophecies that Daniel is delivering about things that are to come. And so this particular study, we're going we're gonna, to uh, draw a line, if you will, here with Daniel chapter 6 and finish our study with this, and we'll come back in at a future date and time and pick up Daniel 7 through 12 and, and look at some of the, uh, the prophecies. So Daniel 6 this morning, and as you turn there, uh, and I want to just, I want to ask you to think about the, the strongest person you've ever known, right? Think about, think about who personifies strength or, or maybe perhaps bravery, the bravest person you've ever known. Who is it that in your mind personifies bravery, right? When I was a boy, I know for sure that the strongest person I knew, and in my mind, the bravest person that I could think of was my dad, right? And, and maybe many of you was the same. How many of us probably had times where, where we said things like, oh, yeah, well, my dad could, you know, do this, right? My dad, and, and I've even heard my kids at different times uh, exaggerate only just a little, right, to say that their dad could... Uh, lift a house or something, right, uh, uh, which is true if it was, you know, like a dollhouse maybe, but uh, there, there, there are, for many of us, right, there, there are those people, those iconic figures in our lives that personify what we think of when we think of uh, strength and, and bravery. Pike is to the point now where when we stand next to one another, we're looking each other in the eye, and he's only 13 years old, right? And so I have to remind him regularly that you may be as tall as me, but you're nowhere near as strong as I am, right? And I have to keep my bluff in there, although uh, I think my days are numbered with that as well. But the point is just we can each one of us, we can picture someone or, or maybe a group of people that personify strength, bravery, those things for us. Uh, you know, in a day and time when when we look at what's happening in, in our culture, uh, in, in the world around us even right now, I, we could point to any number of ongoing situations where uh, first responders, particularly police officers, are in the headlines for, for uh, the shootings and things that have happened. And, and, uh, and I'm not here to make this a, a political moment uh, about that, but when we think about that, okay, when we think about those men and women who put their lives in danger for ours. Those men and women who are, are daily thrust into uh, perilous situations to protect us, to protect you and I, our culture, preserve our freedoms, our laws, and those things. Uh, th those, are, those are brave men and women. They personify bravery. They personify uh, that for us, right? And, and yet in the midst of that, there are, even, even when we think of that, we, we can see where the culture is, is attacking those things. And, and, and I don't 
again, I, I don't mean to say that in every situation, every action was uh, perfect. Uh, I'm not trying to make a statement on one side or the other. I'm just trying to get you to think about those people. Because typically when we think of bravery, we think of, we think of someone who's who's strong and has valor, someone who, uh, a warrior, if you will, a soldier, a, a police officer. We think, of, we, we think of along those lines, right? In our minds, we personify bravery and courage. And, and I don't mean to say that we shouldn't. I don't mean to say for, for one moment that those aren't great examples for us. Our soldiers who take up arms to defend our freedom, our men and women who put themselves in harm's way to protect and serve. The, the, those are great examples, but sometimes we, we overlook other acts of courage and bravery, other acts of strength as well. And what we find in Daniel chapter 6 is the picture of, of Daniel in the, in the waning years, in the later years of his life. And yet, what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 6 is, I think, one of, the, one of the bravest, one of the most courageous acts in all of the Bible, what we see Daniel do, the, 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 sheer, the sheer strength of character, the, the poise that it took. And not only just based on Daniel's actions, but even the fact that Daniel did not defend himself when his life was on the line. He entrusted himself to the hand of God in this situation. It's an incredible story, one that you know, no doubt, Daniel in the lion's den, right? We know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But I hope this morning that you'll be able to see the story of Daniel in the lion's den through, through new eyes, with fresh eyes, if you will, and consider the, the boldness, the courage that it took for Daniel to stand in the face of this king. And so Daniel chapter 6, we jump right in and on the back of your worship guide, there's a place where you can follow along and you can take notes for the sermon this morning. And the first thing that we see in Daniel chapter 6 is this. It's Daniel's position. Daniel's position. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. And verse 3 tells us, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now here is the picture of Daniel in the latter years of his life. Daniel, we don't know his precise age at the moment of his captivity, but Nearly 70 years, in fact, 70 and, and perhaps even a few more than 70 years have passed at this point. And so Daniel is a character in this point of the story, in this point in his life, when he is in his mid to late 80s, okay? That's an, that's an old man, right? Even, in, even by our standards today, we would say, yeah, if I make it to be, you know, in my late 80s, I've lived a long, full life. I've known a lot of people in their late 80s who would say, I'm an old man, I'm an old woman, right? I've lived a long time. And that's where we find Daniel in this situation. But notice Daniel's position even in the latter years of his life. One of the things that we've seen throughout Daniel's life is that kingdoms come and go. 
kings and, and, and even we might even say empires have come and gone in this period of time from the Babylonians now to the, in, in this case, the Persians. And yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of these kingdoms, in the midst of these situations, Daniel continues to rise to the top in any kingdom. And why is that? Well, the scripture tells us here that that he was distinguished because an excellent spirit was in him. In other words, they recognized that there was something different about Daniel. Now, the king in this story is, is named Darius. And Darius is a little bit of a of an, an enigmatic figure because we don't know much about Darius from extra-biblical evidence. We don't know much about who this person Darius is. But I believe that the most plausible explanation here is that Darius is a, is a royal title used for Cyrus the Persian, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the conquering king, the leader of the Persian Empire at the time that they, that they conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. We know that from history. That's verified from extra-biblical accounts. Darius was a title, like the word, like we would use the word Caesar, like we would use the word Pharaoh. The word Darius was a title that was given to leaders, monarchs, in the, particularly in the, the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, we know of at least five different Medo-Persian kings from inscriptions that are, that are found from uh, archaeological digs, excavations. We know of at least five different individuals who, whom are bestowed this title Darius. And so likely this Darius here is Cyrus the Persian. And in fact, the very last verse of Daniel chapter 6, the very last verse tells us that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. But some biblical scholars have argued that that, that word there that is used as the, the conjunction, the, the connecting word, could be translated even. And so that would read like this. This Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So it, it seems likely that this is Cyrus the Persian, the, the king over the Persian Empire, this Darius here, this king over this kingdom. And he has recognized in Daniel a quality of leadership, a character that was unlike the other leaders that he has, to the point that Daniel is once again in a different kingdom under a different set of ruling authorities, even a different set of rules altogether, has risen to the top to the point where he is essentially head over the, the kingdom, second only to the king, really, in this situation. And so Daniel's position is important. You know what else I find is, is really significant about this when we think about Daniel's position is that being a man at this point of, of old age, being that he is in his late 80s, we see that Daniel is still God's man in this situation. You know what I find interesting about that when we look at, when we look at uh, the world today, in our culture today, in a culture where we, where we value recreation, we value leisure, we value free time, we value the, the freedom to come and go, we get to a point where, where we reach... Our, our early 60s, and, and we're ready to just shift it into, into neutral and, and coast to the finish line. And here is Daniel, who even in his last years is strong to the end. 
If there's a word that we need to hear in this, and, and this isn't even the main point of the passage, right? But if there's a word that I think that God has for us today when we study the life of Daniel is that we would be strong until our race is finished, right? That we would run hard to the very end in our lives. That we wouldn't buy the lie that we retire somehow in our Christian faith. That, you, that, that we wouldn't we wouldn't say things like, well, I've served my time, I've done my part, I raised my kids, I did this, I did that, I, right? But here is a man who even in his latter years, there's a boldness, there's a, a fire that we will see in him. I, I believe that if you could have been there and if you could have looked Daniel in the eyes, you would have seen a, a fire in his eyes, even in his late 80s. That would have, that would have been something to behold, right? That he was still God's man, even at this point, after all that he's been through. So Daniel's position is the first thing we recognize when we study Daniel chapter 6. The second thing that we see as this story unfolds is the official's plot. These presidents, these satraps, these leaders, these governing officials became jealous of Daniel because of Daniel's position in the kingdom, because of Daniel's integrity, because of his character, because again and again he's risen to the top. Because here is this man who is an exiled Jew who is at this point, in every way we might say, an old man who's served his time, and, and here he is in yet another kingdom, and he's risen above the the, uh, those who are seeking after power, right? Those who are ambitious. And God keeps placing Daniel in these key positions of leadership. And so we see the official's plot here. Look at verse 4. Notice what it is that they say about Daniel. That is so telling. Verse 4, Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard, uh, excuse me, with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Now, can, can think about that for just a moment. They were looking for a way to bring Daniel down. They were looking for dirt on Daniel. Now, what do we see again and again in our political system today, right? We've, we see that those who rise to power, that there's always some kind of dirt, right? And then this happens today, the same as, as it happened in, in this story in Daniel chapter 6. Someone rises to power, and those who are around him who are jealous of that position do everything they can to try to bring that person, that candidate, if you will, down. They do everything they can to try to ruin their record, to try to ruin their reputation, and yet Daniel, through a host of kings and kingdoms, there's no charge to be brought against him. There's no blemish to be found on his record of service or even in his private life. There was nothing that they could find to, to bring Daniel down. Verse 5 says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What an incredible thing. We're not going to find anything against Daniel unless somehow we find it in connection with the law of his God. Which other, in other words, what they're saying is the only, thing that we can, the only thing that we can use against him is his faith. The only thing that we're going to be able to do to try to bring down Daniel somehow is to somehow distort this, this idea of his faith, to turn his, his faith and his faithfulness against him. Verse 6, then these presidents 
And satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. And all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So they play to the king's vanity here, right? They, they play to his, his desire to be great. And they conceive a plan. O king, for 30 days, let, let us worship no one but you. For 30 days, if anyone would bow down and, and pray or worship anyone else other than you, O king, let them, be, let them be cast into the den of lions. Let them be executed, essentially. Let them be killed. And the king signs the document. You know, what's interesting is that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, it says in verse 8, this could not be revoked. Once the king issued a law, once the king spoke and a law, and then it was signed into law, that law could not be revoked. It could not be overturned. And so essentially what the king has done is he has now made a rule that is binding for 30 days that even he as king could not undo. Now we don't know, we don't know a lot about the, the laws and the customs of the Medes and the Persians, but we know this to be true. Extra biblical accounts, meaning sources outside of the Bible, confirm this, this, this truth of their, of their culture, of their practice, that when the king signed something into law, it was binding. And so these officials have plotted against Daniel, and the only thing that they can use against him is his faithfulness to God. What would it be like if you and I lived the kind of lives that the only thing that could be said against us somehow by the world around us, the culture that we live in, the only thing people could bring against us was our faithfulness to God. Think about that. Think about what it would mean to live with the kind of character, the kind of virtue, the kind of integrity that someone else, that the only thing that they could say against you is, well, I mean, they're so faithful to, they're so faithful to God. They're so committed to their faith, and it just annoys the rest of us, right? Essentially, that's that's what they've done with Daniel here. And because of their influence, because of their position in the kingdom, they were able to turn this into a law, basically a law against him. This law existed to try to catch Daniel in a trap. But Daniel is content to be caught, isn't he? We see next Daniel's prayer. So we've had the Daniel's position, the official's plot. Next we see Daniel's prayer in verses 10 and 11. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees and three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. What's interesting is that verse 10 tells us that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. None of this caught Daniel by surprise. Remember, he's second in the kingdom to the king himself. He, he was over these officials. He was, 
he, he had authority and, and, and power and influence over these officials who brought this law and essentially pushed it through. And yet, when Daniel realizes what has been done, when, when, he, when he understands what is on the line in this situation, the consequences for disobeying the law, what does he do? He, he follows his daily pattern of prayer. He goes into his room in the upper chamber of his home. That was a common, uh, a common architectural feature of homes in this day and time, would have been an upper room where families could have spent time in the cool evening hours where they, they, they could have escaped the, the hotter part of the day and, and retreated to this place. It was a place of fellowship, a place where uh, a social gathering place. And Daniel retreated to this place in his home. And he knelt three times a day and he prayed to God, knowing the consequences, knowing what was at stake if he were to do this. You know, I find it interesting on, on a number of levels. First of all, the boldness of what Daniel does. Right? The boldness that he would defy the order of the king by, by a simple act of faithfulness to God. I find it, I find it really compelling the, the fact that he understood and yet he, he retreated into his prayer closet, if you will, still knowing that they were seeking. Daniel had to have known, he had to have known that this was a plot to catch him, right? He had to have known. He's not a, he's not a, 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 a foolish man. He's not unwise. He knows the circumstances. He's lived through multiple kings and kingdoms now. He's seen powers come and go. He knows what it's like that there are these greedy, power-hungry men who are grasping for his position, who want to bring him down. This isn't his first rodeo. He knows what's going on here, and yet still he retreated to, to his room to pray to God. And it says that he would turn and he would pray toward Jerusalem. Why would he pray toward Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was, was his homeland, right? It was the, the place of his birth, the place of his childhood, where he was taken from in captivity as only a child. And when you, when you study the Scripture and you begin to lay the biblical timeline on top of, of each other, the, the different books of the Bible, the different events that are occurring, these events are occurring somewhere in in the mid to late 530s B.C. So the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C. Somewhere around 537 B.C., Cyrus the Persian issued a decree that allowed the, the exiles of Judea and Jerusalem to return to their homeland. We know that from the book of Ezra. And so Shezbazar led a group of Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple in and around 538, 539 B.C. You know what's interesting is that likely when that issue was decreed, we don't know this, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm filling in the blanks, reading between the lines, if you will, but likely when that happened, it seems that Daniel would have been in a power of prominence and authority. And so it's, it's not too much of a stretch for us to conceive that Daniel himself was influential in Cyrus's decree to allow the Jews to return to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city where they were exiled from. It, it seems, in fact, entirely likely that, that that was the case. But Daniel, because of his position, because of his power and his authority in the kingdom, remains in, in the capital city. He remains near the king and serving the king and honoring and, and faithful to the king. And yet, 
three times a day, he would enter this upper room in his home, his private chamber, and he would face toward Jerusalem, the city of his childhood, the, the, the place of his heart, and he would cry out to God. Again, what a great example for us that we would cry out to God for our city, that we would, that we would cry out to God in prayer for our city, that the longing of our heart would be to see a movement of the hand of God in our midst, in our city. You know, in in just a, a matter of a couple of weeks, really, uh, when we get into next week, our church is going to launch into the, the 3151 campaign that we've been talking about. We're joining with Oklahoma Baptists, Baptists around our state, who are going to participate together in this 3151 challenge that we would pray daily for three lost friends, that we would learn one gospel presentation, that we would, over the course of this 3151 challenge, that we would invite five unchurched people to church with us and that we would share our faith at least once to someone who doesn't know Christ. The example that we're, that we're calling, uh, that we are calling our church to, the example of this 3151 challenge is the very same example that we see in Daniel chapter 6, a man who is broken, whose heart is stirred for his people and his homeland, and so he would cry out to God on their behalf. So we see Daniel's prayer in all of this. Daniel knew what was at stake in all of this. But not only that, we see next in the story, we see the king's predicament. The king's predicament. Let's keep reading in chapter 12. Excuse me, in verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king has established can be changed. And then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So Daniel is now caught in this trap that has been laid for him. He's caught in this plot that was intended to bring him down. And the king is in a real predicament here because the king clearly cares deeply for Daniel, because as soon as the king finds out, he spends, he spends the rest of the day, he, he searches through the law, he does everything he can to try to find some loophole, some way out, some way that he would not have to send this dear elderly man that he loved, whose wisdom he benefited from into a den of lions. And yet, there is no loophole that can be found. There is no way out. The law is binding and the king knows it. And so what do they do? They, they lower Daniel into this den of lions. Now what's interesting about the, the den of lions itself, these lions were, were not native to 
these lands. The, the, the lions themselves were, were not a native creature to this part of the world. This, this would have been in, in modern-day Iraq and Iran, the, the, kind of in the, the lands that border those two countries. And this was not, that, that was not the, the, the native home of lions. And so these lions were brought in from other parts of the kingdom, most likely from, from Africa, from places in Africa. And they were kept in this den. There, are, there is archaeological evidence that has been discovered that, that shows the type of, of pit that, the, that these lions would have been encased in. Most likely, it was some kind of a, of a cave in the side of a hill, and they would have used a large stone to cover the entrance to this cave or this pit, and they would have created an opening at the top where they could lower food down into the cave. But these lions were intentionally they were, they were intentionally not fed. They were intentionally uh, kept hungry so that when they were fed, someone, because this was a, a form considered to be a form of, of, of punishment, that, that they, would, they would essentially feast on, on their, their victim. And so the story unfolds here that Daniel is lowered into the lion's den. You know, there have been some who have tried to cast shade against the story, some who have tried to find some way to, uh, to essentially to, to prove or disprove, I should say, this, this story from the Bible. And yet, uh, they can't do that because the, the evidence seems clear in the story and, and even archaeological, extra-biblical evidence supports something like this that could have happened because they've, they've found pits very much like this. You know, some have argued, well, the lions weren't hungry, and so the reason that they didn't kill Daniel is because the lions weren't hungry. Uh, but we see even in this story the other evidence that's there to prove to us that they were, in fact, hungry. They, some have argued, well, there weren't, there weren't very many lions. There couldn't have been very many lions. But again, even in this story, we see the evidence that those who were lowered, the officials and their families, this would have been throngs of people that would, have been, that would have been lowered into this, that their bodies were torn apart before they ever even reached the floor of the, of the lion's den. Again, that doesn't seem to indicate that there were only one or two lions here and that somehow Daniel just hid from them, right? So the story clearly points to God's hand in, in all of this, but the king is in a real predicament because of this law that he has issued. So he retreats to his palace, and he spends the evening. No diversions were brought to him. We don't know precisely what those diversions were. Food, dancers, musicians, women, it could have been any or all of those things. But no diversions were brought to the, the king on this evening. And he was restless, and he didn't sleep, and so he fasted throughout the evening. And so next we see God's provision. We've seen Daniel's position, the official's plot, Daniel's prayer, the king's predicament, and now God's provision, verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. These were not some friendly, docile lions, right? Uh, These were vicious beasts, and yet God sent his angel to close the lion's mouths so that Daniel would be preserved. It's God's provision for Daniel. The king, when he came to the, the lion's den to see about Daniel, cries out, Servant of the living God, your God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Again, we see a testimony of Daniel's faithfulness. What is it that the king understood about Daniel? That Daniel continually served his God. Even in this situation, Daniel was not willing to forfeit his faithfulness to God, even for the law of this king. God, of course, did preserve him. God did rescue him by providing this angel to close the mouth of these lions. I also think it's interesting that before he was lowered into the lion's den, Daniel didn't try to defend himself. The story doesn't tell us that when they, when they caught Daniel praying, that Daniel tried to use his power or his authority in some way. The story doesn't seem to indicate that Daniel pled for his life. Instead, he willingly submitted himself to the judgment of this king. He willingly yielded himself to what he knew to be these, these, uh, th- this, this punishment, this these circumstances that awaited him, if you will. And yet, what do we see here on this side of things? As he's rescued from the pit, we see now that he, he simply says, God spared me because he found me to be blameless and faithful. Daniel trusted himself to God. There was no promise here that Daniel would be rescued. There was no promise that Daniel, that his life would be preserved, and yet we see in Daniel's life again and again in the stories, Daniel one through six, that Daniel willingly places his life in danger because he chooses to honor God above the law of men. Next, we see the king's praise. Look in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This king recognized the power of Daniel's God, and he he writes his praise. He he creates this. Even in your Bible, these words are are set apart because these are words of, of, of poetry or of praise, a lyric of some sort. The king is writing songs of praise to God because he recognizes the power of Daniel's God and what, and what he has done for Daniel. And so we see the king's praise of God here, which is really the point of the story, isn't it? God works through Daniel's life and Daniel's example, through the testimony of this man who has served God faithfully his whole life, and God works through that to lead others to praise him. That's the point of the story. That's the point of Daniel's life that we see again and again. 
And may it be the point of our lives and really the telling part of our story as well that God would use our faithfulness, our testimony to draw others to worship and honor him. And finally, we see Daniel's prosperity in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This Daniel, who was faithful to God, God prospered him. God protected him by providing for him in these circumstances, and and he, he flourished. Even in his late age, he flourished. Quickly this morning, I want to draw a couple of points that we can see throughout Daniel's life and his story. When we're thinking about, okay, well, how do, how do I connect? What, what do I learn from this for my life? Not only Daniel 6, but these first six chapters, the story of Daniel's life, we see that Daniel was faithful for a lifetime. Daniel remained faithful even, in, even into his later years. He was faithful for a lifetime. May we serve God and be faithful to him for, for a lifetime. May we run our race well. It's been said before that the Christian journey that we're on is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And may we run with endurance, run with patience. Daniel, secondly, was known for his virtue. In subsequent kingdoms and kings, again and again, Daniel was known for his virtue and his character. When these men plotted against Daniel, the only thing that they could use against him was his faith, because he was a man of virtue. There was no blemish to be found on his record. Third, I think we see that Daniel trusted God when the outcome was unclear. There's no guarantee that God will rescue him from the den of lions, just as there was no guarantee that God would rescue his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, just as there was no guarantee that Daniel and his friends would look fitter and healthier than the rest of the, the rest of the refugees, the rest of, of the, the, the captured ones in Daniel chapter 1, right? Again and again and again we see in the story, Daniel places himself in the hands of God even when the outcome was unclear. And finally, this point that we see from Daniel's life, that he was obedient even when obedience was costly. You know, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we see the example of the disciples who are who are imprisoned, who are beaten for preaching the gospel, and their response when they are put on trial, their response is simply, we must obey God rather than men. And that's exactly what we see in Daniel's life. His faithfulness to God above and beyond his his faithfulness to any human king or kingdom. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his faith even when his obedience was costly. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So we learn from Daniel that even when obedience is costly, we should remain true. We learn from Daniel that even when the outcome is unclear, we should trust God. We learn from Daniel that if we will live a virtuous and honorable life, a life of integrity, that in the end, our integrity will, will prove its worth. We learn from Daniel that we should serve God faithfully for a lifetime. There is no such thing as retiring from faithfulness to God and his calling in our lives. I pray that God would use these, these lessons from the life of this man to, to push us, to challenge us, to spur us on so that we might live lives of faithfulness, of obedience, of virtue, that we might trust God in our circumstances, just as we learn from the example of Daniel.
in a moment this morning, we're going to enter into a time of response. And in this time of response this morning, if you have been moved by the example of Daniel, if you have been challenged by the example of Daniel, maybe there's something in your life that you've been wrestling with and and you aren't sure that you're going to trust God. You aren't sure that the cost is worth it. And yet God is using Daniel's example to show you that it's always worth it to honor him and obey him. During our time of invitation today, our altars will be open. I pray that you would come and that you would, that you would solidify your commitment to honor God, to walk with him, even when, when obedience is costly. Maybe today, maybe today for some, you've, you recognize that you've, you've thrown the towel in, right? You've reached a point where you, you served God well for a season. There, there's, there, there have been times in your life where you, where you were faithful and you were obedient, but Honestly, when you think about it, you've, you've, you've backed off. I mean, there's, for, for lack of a better way to put it, you've, you've slowed down in your service to God's call in your life. What we learn from Daniel is there's no retirement plan here, right? Retirement comes when God calls us home. But up until the minute that he takes us, may we be found faithful and obedient to him just as Daniel was. Maybe you're here today and And this is a real challenge to you to live a life of virtue. Whatever it is that that impacts you about the story of Daniel, the example of Daniel, I pray that in our time of invitation today, that if God is moving in your heart, that you would come and respond by faith to him. Our staff will be here at the front ready to pray with you, ready to encourage you, ready to pray with you if there's an area in your life that you'd like for us to pray with you about. Our altars will be open here for you to come and pray as well. But I challenge you that you would learn from the example of this man and that you would devote yourself wholeheartedly to God, even when that devotion might be costly, that you would serve him with all that you have. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the example of your servant Daniel, that he was willing to serve you even when it was costly, that he was willing to remain faithful and true even when his obedience put his life in danger. God, may we learn from this example that we too would would be sold out to you, that we would be fully committed, all in, as it were, God, to serve you and honor you with our lives. Lord, if there's any area of our hearts where we have been anything less than completely committed, Lord, today, would you convict us? Would you move in our hearts so that we might devote our lives to you? Lord, if there's any part of our lives where we've not been living with the kind of virtue and integrity that you've called us to, Lord, convict us of that, that we might surrender those things to you and walk by faith and obedience to the plan that you've called us to. So God, would you move in our hearts and our lives in this time as we respond in faith and obedience to you? We pray in your name. Amen.